We had finished studying verse 17 where we see that we are to live as strangers. Our last point was our conduct which, in which we examined our motivation while we li- are living here on earth. We saw that we are to fear the Lord, and we explained what fearing God means, not cowering, but a proper awe and respect of who God is. And one way we can have a proper fear of the Lord is remember the great sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. While salvation is free, it came at a great cost. Sometimes I believe because it is free to us, somehow the value gets cheapened. You know, it's been said in some countries, you give them something free, it must be worthless. So missionaries, and I forget what country it was, but they have an issue because obviously they want to hand out scriptures free, but then people don't see the value of it because they didn't pay anything for it. Often, I believe, too many view salvation the same way. Well, if it's free, then it must be pretty cheap. But it wasn't. So we're going to focus on redemption. And I trust this morning to be able to help identify and define what redemption is. We sing a song, Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But what does it mean to be redeemed? So let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, yes, I know, again, that's just a partial sentence, but I believe there's much in these phrases that we can glean this morning. And so we're going to look at four points. First of all, we'll see the purchase as we define redemption. So the purchase. Secondly, we'll notice the past. The passage tells us we had a vain conversation. Then we'll examine the price What was the price of our redemption? And then our last point, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Because you and I need to realize we are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So let us look to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, thank you for your love and goodness. Lord, we pray now as we examine this passage again, you give us wisdom from on high and help us again to be reminded of the great price of our redemption. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. What does it mean to be redeemed? Webster defines it this way. He says, A ransom delivered from bondage, distress, penalty, liability, or from the possession of another by paying an equivalent. Somebody would be redeemed. Okay, so if one were in bondage and another were to pay the price of them and then set them free, they would be redeemed right? Or you can look at it this way. If you've ever used a pawn shop, you take something to the pawn shop, right? And then they give you some cash. And then when you bring that cash plus the interest back, you have what? The item. Redeem the item. And now they give it back to you, right? Not until. Okay, so the idea of buying something back, if you will, 
Now, God owns us by creation, right? But we are sinners. Our sin has separated from God, right? So if you will, then in order to have that proper relationship with God, he had to buy us back. He already owned us once, but he had to buy us back. We see another example of this in Scripture in the book of Hosea, whose wife, Gomer, he married Gomer. Gomer went into adultery, ended up on the slave market, and Hosea had to go buy her back, redeemed her. Again, an example of God buying us back. So the theological definition then of Redemption is the divine act by which Jesus Christ paid the whole demand of the law against the sinner, setting him free from the curse and bondage of the law forever. Now, that, every word of that, I believe, is important, so I'll read it again. The divine act by which Jesus Christ paid the whole demand of the law, not the partial, all of it, against the sinner. Because, see, if... It just was partial. If we offended in one point, we're guilty of all the law still. So it had to be a whole transaction, right? Setting him free from the curse and bondage of the law forever. So let's then look at some application as we think about this verse. First of all, we are free from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The law says you and I must die because we have broken God's law. Right? The wages of sin is death. And so the curse of the law has a curse of death on every one of us. Aren't you glad Christ has broken the curse of the law for us? Now, I want you to think about this verse. And if you want to turn with me, it's just back just a few pages in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the last verse of the chapter. In order for Christ to redeem us from the curse of the law, from the sin, the wages of sin, I want you to see this again so you understand the cost was very pricey. It was not cheap. Verse 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be the made the righteousness of God in him. You see, some say our sin was placed on Christ, but the Bible goes further and says he became sin for us. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. My little finite mind cannot fully understand that concept, but I will tell you this. The holy God who cannot even look upon sin... His son hanging on the cross at Calvary became my sin. No wonder the son refused to shine and God the Father had to turn his back on his own son as he became my sin. And Christ cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Those are extremely important words because understand, somehow, some way, for the only time in all of eternity, the Godhead was separated. 
Now, I don't understand that fully, but I do know, according to the Scripture, as Christ became my sin, God the Father and God the Son during that time were separated. You say, how is that possible, preacher? I don't know. But I do know one thing. That's an extreme cost, and that's what my redemption that was what they had, that's what had to be paid for my redemption. I want you to think about that for a moment. You see, as I said many times, I believe as Jesus was, uh, was pleading with the Father in the garden, it wasn't about the physical pain. It wasn't about the cross of Calvary. It wasn't the shame that he was going to bear. It was the fact that he and the Father, God the Father was going to forsake his own son as he became my sin. I believe that's the cup he did not want to drink. But yet, not my will, but thine be done. And you say, how is it possible the will of the Father and the will of the Son were in conflict at that moment? Again, I don't know. But I will say this. What a price Jesus Christ had to pay. He became my sin. I want you to think of that, Christian. I want you to think of that cost. Every time we choose to sin, because as redeemed, we have a choice. We're set free from the bondage of sin, right? We're set free from the bondage of the law. So we now make a choice. When I choose to sin, I want you to think of the suffering Christ had to pay and endure for that sin. Puts it in a new light, doesn't it? But not only are we free from the curse of the law, we're free from the law itself. Galatians 4, 5, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. You know, we talk about the Ten Commandments, but there was, what, 613 laws that the Jews had to abide by? And aren't you glad we don't have to go by all those laws anymore? I'm glad we can eat pork. I'm glad we can eat shellfish. I'm glad we didn't have to bring a lamb in here for a sacrifice. I am thankful that we are not under the law, aren't you? Now, let me remind you, the law never was a means of redemption. Excuse me. The purpose of the law always was to show man his sinfulness. The purpose of the law always was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Because we would not know sin if we had not known the law. The Bible's very clear. Thou shalt not kill. So, as we talk of the subject of abortion, it is amazing to me that many will quote that verse and say, yes, thou shalt not kill. But it's okay because of political expediency to say that six weeks or 12 weeks, so those babies killing are fine. It's still, it's still killing, right? Now, they don't say it that way, but ultimately, by what they're proposing, that's what they're saying, is it not? Now, I have been challenged many times and say, well, if you believe in the sanctity of life, then why do you also hold to capital punishment? My answer is because the Bible teaches it. And the Bible makes it clear when a man chooses to kill another man, he has forfeited the right to continue to live. So I don't see it as a conflict. Some do, but it's not because God makes it clear. It's not that the government has the right to just go randomly killing people, but if they choose to take another's life or certain other crimes, then they have forfeited the right to continue to live. We're freed from the curse of the law. We're freed from the law itself. We're freed from the bondage 
of sin. Romans 6, 14, For sin shall no more have dominion over you, for ye are under the law, not under the law, but under grace. Lord willing, in a couple Wednesdays, I want to start a series on how to have a continuous, victorious Christian life. And in part of that series, we're going to cover that passage again in Romans 6, very uh, hopefully, Lord willing, extensively, because part of having a victorious life, Paul says, is reckoning yourselves dead to sin, alive to Christ. You see, the Bible has much to say about we are freed from the bondage of sin. Then, Christian, why do we sometimes still dwell in sin? It really has to do with the whole process of putting off, renewing our mind, putting on, recognizing the fact that we are free from the bondage of sin. I can no longer use the excuse, I am a slave of sin. Before I was saved, that was true. I've been freed from the bondage of sin. Therefore, that does not stand as an excuse any longer, does it? Well, we're all just human. That's true. Well, we all have a sin nature. That's true. But the Bible says sin no longer has dominion over you. So if there are those habits of life, as the song says, though harmless they seem, if they are distracting you from your walk in God, God wants to give you victory over those habits. But then, I'm glad for this, we are waiting for the release from the presence of sin. You see, we're still, yes, we still carry that sin nature. Yes, we're still in this sin-cursed earth. And yes, we still live in a world that turns us back on God. But Romans 8.23, And not only they, but ourselves also, which are the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting the adoption to wit the redemption of the body. And I cannot wait until this mortal puts on immortality and that we no longer have the presence of sin with us. Now, we're not there yet, but oh, what a glorious day that will be. And we should be living more like that day by day. Now going back to our passage in 1 Peter. So Peter says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold from your vain conversation." So what is our vain conversation? Our old lifestyle was completely worthless. Is that not what vain means? Useless, worthless. Our vain conversation, the word conversation, again, in the older English, did not mean just our speech, but our entire life, conduct, or, or manner of living, our lifestyle. And we have recorded for us in the pages of Scripture the wisest man who ever lived, who tried finding satisfaction in all this world has to offer. I want you to think about Solomon for just a moment. God gave him wisdom after he asked for discernment to be able to lead his people. God gave him wisdom that no other man has ever had. But you know what he says about wisdom and learning? is vanity. Solomon had wealth beyond belief. I mean, you read about the temple he built, you read about his house he built, you know, gold and silver and brass and fine wood, and you name it, he had it. It was a beautiful place, both the temple and his palace. He had 
wealth. And remember when it gives the list of what the food was, what the menu was every day in his palace? I mean, there's some good eating happening in that palace. He had wealth beyond measure. But you know what he says about wealth? It's vanity. And then when it comes to pleasure, Solomon had all the singers. He had all the musicians. I mean, you name it, he had it. He wanted to have a concert. He would just call them up. He wanted to have somebody singing for him. He'd just call them up. They were there ready to go. He had it all ready to go at any time. When it comes to women, I still question the wisest man in the world having a thousand women. But you know what he says about all that? Vanity. 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 Why is it, Christians, so often Satan is able to tempt us to look back at the good old days and the good old things that, he sa- that God saved us out of, and we look back at those as though those are something to be held on to? It reminds me of the Israelites as they're wandering through the wilderness, forgetting about the stripes on their back, forgetting about the hard labor that they were forced to do, forgetting about all the mockery of all the Egyptians, but they're sitting there, oh, Moses, back in the good old days, back when we were in Egypt, we used to sit by the flesh pots and we ate melons and cucumbers and garlic, and oh my, how wonderful it was back in the good old days, Moses. And yet so often too many Christians live like the good old days. Listen, it was vanity. Your old life is vain. It is worthless. And there was nothing there. You were saved out of it. Why do you even look back at it as it has any attraction to you whatsoever? It should be in the past and forgotten about. You listen to some people when they talk about their past. Or, since they're saved, they've not gotten rid of some of the old. Or, what they replace it with looks almost exactly like what they started with. You know, the Bible says there's an old song. Or, the Bible says there's a new song. That implies there's an old song. The Bible says that all things are become new. So, whatever it is of the past, whether, I mean, if somebody had in their past an addiction to TV, then maybe get rid of the TV. Somebody had in their past an addiction to the porn, then maybe you need to either get rid of the computer or get some, some type of accountability while you're on the computer. If in your past you had a, a habit of foul language, then don't hang around listening to foul language, right? I mean, you replace it with something. And we could go on. The places you used to go, the things you used to whatever... So many in this world are trying to chase material things, thinking that they will bring happiness. But they're all going to burn up one day. If you just go over to 2 Peter, just a few pages over, chapter 3 and verse 10. Hold your place here in 1 Peter. We'll be right back. 2 Peter 3.10, Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Let me tell you something. I think we're the only nation in the world that has so many storage units to hold our junk that we just won't get rid of, but we got to hold on to it for some reason, and we don't even know what's in half of the boxes, but I own it, so I must keep it. I'm learning in my life, you know what? If I haven't used it in a year, I probably don't need it. And why hold on to it? Why hold the things of this earth so dear? 
We were in bondage to sin, but we now have been made free. But verse 18, he says, For as much as you know, you're not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers. We are to live by the word of God, not the tradition of men. God told Israel in Ezekiel 28, 18, But I said unto their children in the wilderness, Walk ye not in the statutes of your father, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourself with their idols. You see, too often traditions of men are taught instead of the commands of Scripture. Many have their own ideas of how to get to heaven. As I said last week, religion is man trying to get to God, trying to earn favor with God. It's man's way trying to earn his way into heaven. And let me tell you, all the false doctrines end up being a works religion. I've not studied a one yet that doesn't somehow end up turning into a works religion. Because man wants to believe that his own righteousness is good enough, but it's not. So we've seen the purchase, we've seen the past. Let's look now, thirdly, at the price. Verse 18 again, it says, For as much as you know, you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. Gold and silver are susceptible to decay and will not and cannot buy redemption. We sing several songs that even mention this. One says, Nor silver nor gold hath obtained my redemption. Another song, If gold bought redemption, how much would it take? I think those are two good songs. If you've never heard either of them, you need to hear both of them. And both of them have a great message. How much would it even take of gold and silver to buy your redemption? Well, the Bible tells me about the home we have waiting for us, that they paved the streets with gold. Now, you don't take your most precious thing and pave the streets with it. So if gold is that devalued in heaven that it's just pavement, wow, <laughs> should say something about the things we hold dear to in this world, doesn't it? You see, it couldn't be corruptible things. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And of course, in the Old Testament, we have the picture of this lamb which Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The Old Testament Passover lamb, the, the one doing the sacrifice did not go to his flock and say, you know what, there's a weak, sickly lamb. I'm just going to use that one. It's never going to survive anyhow. No, God said it had to be a perfect lamb. As a matter of fact, you understand before Passover, they actually had to bring the lamb in the house to examine it and make sure for the next several days, there's no blemish, there's no spot, there's nothing wrong. This is a perfect lamb. This is actually the best in the entire flock that I'm going to use for my sacrifice. The story is told of a missionary. And when I begin with the story is told means I heard this somewhere and I can't verify it and I have no idea where I heard it anymore. Okay, so don't ask. <laughs> but, but I heard it somewhere. Is it true? I hope so, because I don't ever want to tell you false stories. He was in a country where they worship pagan gods, and I forget all the details of why, but this mom had to make a sacrifice of one of her children to their pagan god, according to their false religion. And she had one child who was extremely healthy, a perfect child, if you will. She had another child that was very sickly and probably wasn't going to survive anyhow. 
Now, obviously, the missionary pleaded with her not to sacrifice, not to do this at all. But in her false religion, she insisted she must. And so he switched his tactic and said, then at least take the weak one that's going to die anyhow. And she said, my God expects the best. Now, if a mama is willing to give her best to a false god, why do we think the true God should expect any less than the best? That's why he himself had to provide a lamb. He himself had to become that lamb. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He, God, became flesh to die for you and me. He became that perfect lamb. You see, Jesus Christ kept the law. Jesus Christ was without sin. He was without blemish. He was the perfect lamb. And the only way you and I could have our redemption is that for a perfect lamb to die, the lamb had to be one of us. Hence the reason why Jesus became a man. The lamb had to be perfect. Hence the reason why he is the God-man. Only by the precious blood of Christ, without blemish, as the idea of being faultless, without spot, without defect, pure, unstained, he stood in my place so that I could be redeemed. I want you to think about this. I am free today because Jesus Christ took my punishment. I want you to think about that. I am free today because Jesus Christ died for me. That is the punishment, is it not? Was that the, not the requirement for sin? Is death? He died for me. No wonder the beautiful words of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then as we close, point number four, the precious blood. Understand, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Hebrews 9.22. And Jesus Christ had to shed his blood. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. Precious has the idea of great worth. Greater value than silver and gold. Because the very blood of the Son of God was shed for you and me. You see, in contrast to the silver and gold which is corruptible, the precious blood of Christ is incorruptible. And I am thankful... That unlike the Old Testament, where the shedding of the blood of the lambs and the goats and the bulls had to be repeated over and over because an animal's blood can never wash away sin. It was just a temporary covering. And so they had to be repeated over and over and over and over again. But I am thankful in the sufficiency of the blood of Christ that it was shed once for all. Once for all. The sacrifice of Calvary never has to be repeated. And there's not a man, woman, boy or girl who's ever lived or ever will live that the blood of Christ is not sufficient to save them. I'll say that again. There is not a man, woman, boy or girl who's ever been alive, ever will be alive or is alive today that the blood of Jesus Christ is not sufficient to save them. I have heard many times, I've been too bad. God can't save me. You know what the good news is? The blood of Christ is sufficient. Well, preacher, you don't know what I've done. 
I don't need to know. God already does know. But I also know the blood of Christ is sufficient to save you. Talk about a perfect sacrifice. And folks, it drives me nuts, as I shared Wednesday, that more and more turning to this Reformed theology that God has selected certain ones to heaven and damned the rest to hell is the ultimate conclusion you must come to with the Reformed theology. I'll tell you what, I am glad that whosoever will may come. Because that included me and the wretch that I am. It had to be the perfect blood of Christ. Jesus was willing to shed his blood for your redemption. So if you're here this morning and have not accepted the gift of salvation, may I challenge you today, Jesus Christ died for you. He's made a way of redemption for you. And he wants to save you today. If you've not been saved Would you receive Christ as Savior today? Christian, we need to be reminded of the great price that paid for my redemption. I still have nothing in which to glory other than the fact that God saves and His amazing grace reached even me. Let us bow for a word of prayer.